0: Okay, I have the privilege of reading the text. Pastor is going to be preaching from, and I just want to say, Jeremy, I appreciate your teaching on this, and I appreciate this church that really focuses on God's Word. Um, The text is Revelation chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty-nine. And if you're using the pew or pew Bibles, pew Bibles. I don't know where there are any pews here anymore. If you're using a Bible that's in the chair in front of you, it's on page 1029. To the church in Thyatira, and to the church and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Well,
1: thank you. Uh, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open to that text because that's where we're going to be out as we're continuing on in our series uh, on these seven churches here in Revelation here. Um, for Thyatira, we're seeing a shift in these churches as we're going through. We started in Ephesus, and of course, we've gone through each church so far. And we have uh, a couple more, three more after this. We have Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea that we will be uh, talking through. And you're going to see how it's going to move uh, in progression. You're going to see how that there's going to be uh, from from okay to, there was one church that didn't have any condemnation to it, but then Philadelphia, we're not going to have that as well. Uh, But then we're going to end with Laodicea, where it's going to be like uh, a pretty strong warning. You're, You're hearing the warnings get more and more intense. Uh, from Jesus in these letters uh, to uh, these churches. Let me just remind you where we're at, just kind of a big picture of the area that we're talking about where these churches were located. Uh, obviously you can see uh, Italy and you can see kind of where it was at and down here the Red Sea and uh, Israel would be around here. And so this is this uh, during Paul's missions journeys that we read about in the book of Acts. A lot of these churches were started there to zoom in on it to let you know where we are. We're right here right now the Patmos Island here, that's where John is at in exile, and he's getting these visions and he's writing them down. Jesus tells him to write these things down, and he travels to Ephesus first, Smyrna, Pergamum, where we were last week, and now we're going to Thyatira here, so you can see this coming down, and remember I told you that this was following a general postal route of the time, and so this would have been the reason why it went in this order. They took these letters, and they were delivered to these churches here. Let me tell you a little bit about Thyatira. This is actually the smallest church uh, of the seven that we're going to look at. It's Um, in a somewhat insignificant city uh, uh, an ancient historian, he wrote this, and just in one of his writings, he said, uh, Thyatira and other unimportant communities. Okay, so uh, it just was small. There wasn't a whole lot there. There wasn't uh, a large uh, military presence. In fact, it really was kind of just a, a buffer of some sorts. And so uh, there, there really wasn't a whole lot there, it, with the exception of it was very industrious. They had a lot of uh, trade there. Uh, It would have been, uh, in our vernacular, we would have said this was a blue-collar community. This was a time where there there was a lot of people's trades, uh, and and we see this from historical documents and archaeology excavations that there were um, lots and lots of trades there. And and we, we were introduced to the city of Thyatira back in Acts, in Acts chapter 16. I don't know if you remember, but when Paul was in the city of Philippi, he was trying to see there wasn't a church that was started yet. So he went down by the river. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a lady down by the river down there, and her name was Lydia, and she was a seller of purple. And in Acts chapter 16, uh, Luke records for us that this lady here uh, was from Thyatira. And so we have a, a positive example of a a lady teacher uh, of some sorts in Lydia. And then in our text today we're going to have a negative example as well and we'll get to that in just a minute. The church we don't know exactly when the church was started in Thyatira. It could have been related to uh, the ministry of Lydia. It could have been that she went home after her uh, following of Jesus Christ and they started uh, a church with the community that she had there with the ladies. It, It could have been that she went back home to Thyatira. It could have been. That she wrote back to her family members that were still living in Thyatira, that's a possibility. We don't know, but it's a possibility. In my opinion, it's probably in tandem with what I think is more probable, and that was we remember in Acts nineteen when Peter, excuse me, when Paul was in. Uh, uh, Ephesus for two uh, weeks. It says this. They continued for two years, and not two weeks, two years. They continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so Paul had this ministry in Ephesus for two years, two solid years, and it spread throughout the area. So I think it was probably in tandem with Lydia's connections, but also the fact that Paul was there for two years that this church got started. So. That's a little bit of background of this church, just so you know a, a, a little bit about uh, uh, this as we dive into the message this morning here. Now, Jesus' letter to Thyatira is going to remind us of a few different things. And I got to admit, as I was trying to figure out how to bring this down to, to one sentence or one idea that I wanted to unpack, uh, it was a little difficult because the, even though this is the most, uh, the smallest church of all the seven churches, this is the longest letter. This is the longest one. Of all the seven letters that Jesus is going to write to these seven churches, this is the longest letter and he has the most to say to us. So trying to uh, boil this down to one thought, we could have gone in a few different directions, but here's where I landed for today. Uh, that Jesus is not impressed when we mess with the gospel and it's intended daily implications. Okay. All right. That's where we landed today. And I'm going to unpack that over the next uh, few minutes here, uh, that Jesus is not impressed when we mess with the gospel and its intended daily implications here. And so how I'm going to do this, I'm going to explain that through the good, the bad, the ugly, and then the beautiful, okay? That's what we're going to look at today. The good, the bad, the ugly, then the beautiful. I'm going to pause and ask God's uh, blessing and enablement before I do that, though, okay? God, I I just want to pause now. Anytime we stop to teach your word, anytime we open your word, we want, to be very, very, we want to recognize that we didn't write this. This is your word. You have intentions. And, and this church, uh, no one here built this church. Jesus, this is your church, okay? And so what we want to say is we want to just pause now and recognize that we need you. We need your spirit to guide us as we look at this text of Scripture. It's, it's an honor for me to stand in front of people week after week and open the word of God and teach. It's, it's a privilege, it's a responsibility that I'm so grateful for. But Lord, I want to make sure that I'm always sensitive to your Spirit and your leading. And so I pray in the next few minutes here, whatever I'm saying, God, I pray it be guided by your Spirit. And I pray that I would speak in a way that is helpful but is accurate to the text. And I pray that your spirit would give us good listening ears and remove distractions from, uh, from all of us here. I pray we would be able to put things aside and, and be able to focus in on you and your word. And, and whatever Satan would want to use to distract us from this message here from uh, Revelation chapter 2, I pray that you would combat that and that we would uh, be led by your spirit as I've already prayed. So thank you for this opportunity. and We ask for you to be honored in all that we do. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Okay, so the good, the bad, the ugly, then the beautiful. Let's start with the good here. The good at Thyatira. We see this in verse 19 when uh, you know, JP read this for us. He says, you know, I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patience, endurance, and that the latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you. Okay, and so what, what we see here is that um, we see that, uh, uh, that there are some really good things that he is uh, telling the church of Thyatira about. He's telling them that he has love. And so he basically talks about their works, and he talks about it in four different ways. He says, you have love for God and others. Your faith, your faithful is really what the word there is. You're dependable. Uh, your service, you're meeting the needs, physical and spiritual needs of other people. You have patience, endurance. You're, you're not giving up in the face of opposition. So, so when Jesus writes this letter to this church, he says, man, you've got some good things going here. And then, and then on top of that, I don't know if you picked up on it, he says, but that your latter words exceed the first. What he's telling the church there, he says, you're doing good stuff. And not only that, you're growing. You're growing. And the things that you do now is even better than when you started. And so much like it's the converse of Ephesus. You remember Ephesus? It was like, hey, you love and blah, blah, blah. He says, but nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Okay. So they started great and then they declined. Here is the opposite. Jesus is telling Thyatira, he says, listen, you started and you're doing great things and you're growing in it. So this is the good. The good of the letter here is that these people were growing Christians. This church was growing. It was a small town, small community, lots of trades, blue collar, down to earth people and they were growing in Christ. And Jesus, he says, this is good. This is good. Remember, I said he's not impressed when we mess with the gospel and its daily implications. And so while it's, it's good that they were doing it, there was some bad there. So we got the good. Now we got to go to the bad here. The bad in verse 20 is, is that I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now let me explain what's going on here. Um, this was really a, a teacher in the church, a female teacher in the church, that was modifying the gospel. Now, I don't think, and most people don't think, that the lady's name was actually Jezebel, okay? Do you remember last week... When uh, Jesus was talking about to the previous church, and he talked in Pergamum, and he talked about that the way of Balak and, and, and Balaam. And remember how I told you how Balaam had become kind of a euphemism for uh, deceit and uh, uh, trickery. And I told you the story about uh, how that he was, he was a prophet for hire, and he was trying to uh, corrupt uh, the, the Israel and, and, and whatnot. It's a very similar thing here. So just like Balaam was a was shorthand for that or a euphemism for this kind of teaching, so Jezebel became known for a female false teacher. Okay, okay. So this takes us back to the story of Jezebel. If you were to go back to the First Kings like 16, all the way through, and she pops up in, uh, in and out of the narrative over the next five, six chapters, okay. Let me just recap the story for you if you don't remember it, Okay. There's a king called Ahab, he was king of Israel, and he wasn't a very good king at all, okay? If you read through kings, often you're going to see in this king and then find out he was a terrible king, okay? So they just had a bunch of bad kings. They had a few good ones, but a bunch of bad ones. Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel didn't want anything to do with the God of Israel, okay? In fact, she had her own prophets. She had her own system of teaching, and so what, what we have here is that we have this lady who was influencing her husband, who was already a bad uh, king, and, and was saying that, okay, you know, fine, you can have... The altars to Yahweh. You can have the altars to God and stuff that. She goes, but I want my own prophets and I want my own things and my own way of teaching. And so she would bring in hundreds of prophets and and have her own system of religion and have her own system of of worship. And so um, she added her own worldview, her own theology, her own prophets, and her own, and her own worship that it became eventually became hostile to the God of the Bible and her and her husband, the king. Ahab just let her do it. She ends up uh, in a a very gruesome death in the end, um, and it's just a kind of a tragic story. But you remember, there's in before she dies. Remember, there's a guy by the name of Elijah who was a prophet. And Elijah was one that he had that famous scene of of the prophets of Baal versus the uh, the God of Israel. And you, you remember the altars that were set up and they put water on them and they said, whoever calls down fire will be the true God. And so this is in that scenario, okay? Jezebel was part of those prophets of Baal that was there in that altar, okay? And so when Elijah... Uh, he calls down fire after kind of mocking and things like that. It's a pretty funny story. You should probably read it sometime in book of First Kings. But so this fire comes down, consumes the altar, and so his God wins, basically. The God of the Bible wins, okay? Well, we see this text here that then Elijah goes to Jezreel, okay, the city of called Jezreel. And he goes there, and then he hears someone say, you know, basically, this prophet, Elijah, is going to die by this time tomorrow, okay? And the person who said that was Jezebel, okay, the queen. Now, Elijah then runs away, and he goes, and he gets really discouraged and things like that. And that, that, that's, that's always been brought up as like this great contrast, right? We have Elijah doing this great thing with calling down fire from heaven and all this stuff, and then this one lady just says, hey, I'm going to kill you, and then he runs and hides. And people, they say, well, how could you do this, Elijah? Well, let me just explain that just for a second here. Here's the reason why. The reason why is because when Elijah went to Jezreel, the Scriptures in First King is very clear about that. Why did he go to Jezreel? That's where the palace was. You see, what he was expecting, he was expecting once this came down, his God was on display, everyone would believe, he was expecting Jezebel to repent. He was expecting Jezebel to see this manifestation of God's power and say, okay, I'm out. I'm tapping out here. That's what he was expecting. And so he gets, that's that's why he ran to Jezreel. He ran to the palace to see King Ahab, to see Queen Jezebel repent before God, because that was going to be the capstone of this wonderful event, right? And it didn't happen. And it totally this brought him low. And he's like, well, if, if that's not going to change their mind, what will? Now, the reason why I'm taking time to tell you the story is because you have to have that understanding when you look at this chapter here in this letter to, to Thyatira. Because Jesus is going to mention about them not repenting or her not repenting. That's what happened Back in 1 Kings, right? Okay, so we have this modified gospel, this distorted gospel, and the bad at Thyatira was that Jezebel's modified gospel was tolerated by everyone there. It says, but I have this against you, that's a plural you, that you, plural you, tolerated that woman Jezebel, okay? And so what does this mean here? I got, again, I've got to go back and kind of explain some of this just so you get the point here. Most likely, it had to deal with what was called guilds in the labor, in the trades. Now, that's very similar to like a labor union. These were very common in uh, a Thyatira. Again, archaeological evidence has shown that there were these guilds or these unions, these associations for almost every trade you can think of there. Now, the reason why that's important is because in order to really work in Thyatira, you had to be part of one of these associations of one of these guilds, okay? So you say, what's the big deal with that? No big deal, right? Here's where it became a problem. These guilds often associated any of their prosperity with false gods, and they would offer sacrifices To false gods to help bless their work, okay? And so it became, in order to be uh, in this association, you had to go along with festival meals eating meat, right? As it says here, is that they were uh, eating food sacrificed to idols. That's what it's talking about there. They had to be part of these festival dinners that were in honor of these false gods, asking for their blessing, asking for them to uh, bless their work and things like this. And so so they had to do this if they were going to be part of these associations. More than that, then, then in these festivals, there was drunkenness that would happen. And of course, one behavior would lead to another behavior, to another behavior. And so you can fill in the blanks of what was happening at these places, okay? This is what uh, Jesus is saying to Thyatira. He says, this is what I have against you. You're tolerating this, this teaching, okay? That, and it seems that there was a, a teacher, a prophetess in that church that was saying, it's okay. It's okay. And the reason why is because it was probably saying something to the effect of, of you know, you have to feed your family. You need a job. Because if you didn't join one of these associations, it was really, really, really difficult to find work. So these Christians in Thyatira are between a rock and a hard place. They're in a very, very difficult spot. They feel like they need to be part of an association in order to get work so they can provide for their family. But in order to be part of those associations, they had to be part of these festival meals and they had to be part of these, these uh, idolatrous practices. And it was going against the God of the Bible. Enter this, this false teacher who was basically saying, it's okay. So the teaching may have been presented something like this Listen, you need to eat, you need to feed your family. The guilds are not telling you to deny Jesus, rather, it's just part of the working culture to keep your job. So participate freely. Jesus understands. Besides, he's more concerned with the spiritual than the physical, he knows your heart. He says, you're tolerating this type of teaching. Don't do it. More than that, even worse, Jezebel's modified gospel was embraced by some it says in verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, by inference means that there are some who don't hold to it. What does that mean? There are people that do hold to it. So he says, here's the bad. You're, first of all, every one of you, you're tolerating this teaching going on in your church. You can't do that. And what's worse is that there's a group of you that have absolutely embraced it. He says, this is the bad. Don't do it. So we have the good. There's a lot of good things happening in the church. They're growing. It's awesome. But in the midst of that, there's a bad, and that they weren't discerning about the gospel. They weren't discerning about what it means to follow Christ, and they were bringing in this this modified gospel where it's okay to follow Jesus and do these things as well. And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So we have the good, the bad. Now what's the ugly? The ugly is that there's some ugly consequences here. In verse 21, we see it says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a bed, literally in the text, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. And he says, And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds. Now, what is he talking about here? Most likely, what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about they're the spiritual children of this lady's teaching. This church has probably been established around 40 years by this point. So there would have been time for another generation to be growing up that were following this teaching. And so when Jesus says, listen, I've given her time to repent. I have given her plenty of time to change and we don't know all of what that looked like. We don't know whether other prophets came and talked to her. We don't know anything about that. But we do know that he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to. So he says there's going to be consequences. Throwing into the Bed, there probably has the idea of eternal state, the eternal punishment there, and this idea of the children being. Cut off means that he's going to stop this from going. And there could have been physical uh, punishment as well. We've seen this in the scriptures. It's not always what happens, but you remember Ananias and Sapphira, right? Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck down by God. We see that people were sick and, uh, and that even some had died because of the abuse of the Lord's Supper. It's rare. It's not no- normative, but it does and it has happened. And so here what Jesus is saying, he says, there's going to be ugly consequences for this unless you repent. I love that about Jesus. He says unless you repent. But he gives time for repentance. The false teacher will face eternal consequences. The followers will face eternal consequences unless they repent. Now, I'm telling you to the story here, this letter here, and I hope that as I'm working this out, you're already starting to figure out how to apply this to your own life, okay? I'm going to go there in just a couple minutes here, but I hope that as I'm walking through this story and giving you all the background and all the information, that you're starting to, things are starting to fall into place and say, okay, that makes sense now. One of the ways I'll just give you a quick hint right now is that God gives us time to repent, but that time is not always, uh, we don't know when that time ends, okay? And so I would just call on all of us to repent of the, any sin that's in our lives. And not because, you know, I'm saying that God's going to strike you dead. I, that, that's not my point. But my point is we cannot. God, Jesus is not impressed when we mess with his gospel message and the daily implications that it should bring to our lives. So there's the good, there's the bad, there's the ugly, now let's talk about the beautiful, and these are the, uh, our, Oops, sorry, I missed a slide there, the beautiful promises, the beautiful promises, so the good, the bad, the ugly, now the beautiful promises, and this is what Jesus says, and this is where we're going to spend uh, the rest of our time uh, in, the next, in the last few minutes that we have together. First of all, these promises, there's one, the beautiful promise, number one, is that Jesus will judge justly. It says in verse twenty three, "I will strike your children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and will give to each of you as your works deserve." I love that because it means it says that Jesus says, "I am going to judge justly. I am. I, I know hearts and minds. I know motivations. I know everything that goes on, and everyone according to your works will be judged." This is a theme throughout Scripture. Uh, as our works deserve. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about how that we will stand before God and talks about how that we will be judged. And there's, there's some imagery used there of gold, silver, precious stone. It says the day will come when our works are tried and, and, and basically those that are gold, silver, and precious stone are purified and those that are wood, hay, and stubble are gonna be taken away. And, and so he says, listen, God will judge you according to your works. And so what I want to talk about with that, or I just want to remind you, is that Jesus is the only, in God together, they are the only righteous, truly, truly righteous and just judge, right? You know, when we stand before a, a human judge, we don't know if they are going to be a just judge. We don't know, and we know that they're not completely righteous. We know that human judges make mistakes all the time. We know that people get convicted of crimes that they did not commit, and we know that people that did commit crimes get to go off and they don't have to deal with their, their, their crime. But only God is a righteous and just judge, and he will be able to discern every thought and every heart and every action perfectly, and so Jesus judges justly. Now, that's a beautiful promise because you people may misunderstand you. People may ascribe a wrong motive to you. People may assume that they know something about you and make a judgment about you when they don't know the full story here. Jesus will never, ever do that, okay? you know People will misunderstand us and ascribe wrong motives to us. Jesus here is a righteous judge, and he will never ever do this we're judged according to our works what does that mean well we're created for good works we read this in Titus in the book of Titus we also read this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that you know we were created for good works but we just need to make sure we put it in the proper perspective I like what John Stott said. He said this, deeds or works are never the grounds or means of salvation, but they are the necessary evidence of it. And therefore, they constitute an excellent basis of judgment. So what he's saying there, and I totally agree with him, and the Bible is very clear, is that we don't get salvation based on our works, okay? We can't earn our salvation. But what the scriptures do say is those who are believers in Christ, those who have been saved by God's grace, they will produce good works. That's why James, if you read the book of James, that's why James says, I will show you my faith by my works, okay? That's what he's saying there. He's not saying that, okay, I'm going uh, uh, to do enough good works that then I will earn the faith, or then I will say, okay, yes, I I truly have faith. No, he's saying those who have faith in Christ, their lives are going to be changed, and they're going to have a different direction, and it's going to manifest itself in good works. And Jesus says, I'm going to judge that justly. I'm going to judge that justly. So a beautiful promise here to the church of Thyatira that we can internalize for our own selves is that Jesus is a just judge. But there's another promise. I've got two more. Another promise is this Jesus will not add any more burdens. I don't know if you picked up on that text when JP was reading it, but he says this Verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold uh, this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what um, it says, only hold fast uh, what you have until I come. What I love about that is that he's not saying, okay, because you're part of this church, you're part of this church that uh, is tolerating this, and and, 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 and there's other people in the church that are are completely embracing this. He's not going to say, because you are part of this church, I'm going to put this extra burden on you. Or it's your responsibility uh, to change everything. He says, I'm not putting this burden on you. He says, don't tolerate it. But he says, I'm not going to put these extra burdens on you of how to prove that you are mine. He says, I know your heart already. Now, this is reminiscent of back in uh, Acts chapter 15. I don't know if you remember what was going on in Acts chapter 15, but that's, uh, it was known as the Jerusalem Council that was happening. The question that was raised was basically, can Gentiles be saved? We know that God, through Abraham, created this Jewish race, and that was going to be his people, and, and, and they were going to have the salvation. And then so the question was coming, does the gospel go to the Gentiles? For, for you and me, we look at that as like, well, okay, that doesn't make any sense. But, but in that time, that was a major, major question. And so when, in, in chapter 10... We see uh, the Cornelius episode where, uh, uh, you know, he believes and he uh, was not a Jew. And we see this changing that the gospel is indeed for every person, okay? So so the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 takes place. What happened there is that they determined that they didn't need extra burdens placed on them to prove that they were a Jew, okay? It, It was basically believe in God. Work out the gospel. They said, you know, help the poor, basically. They said, you know, when you're basically, particularly when you're around other Jews, don't eat things that have been strangled just because of the cultural implications and stuff like that. But basically what they said is they said, uh, they, they told them, they said, um, uh, do not uh, add extra burdens to uh, the Gentiles in order for them to be considered uh, Christians, okay? And so uh, um, uh, I love that because Jesus is not adding any more burdens to us. So he's saying, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing it, okay? Keep serving Christ. Keep uh, following and doing what you know to be true. Okay, uh... I got to get back on track, so we'll just move to the next promise. Okay, all right. Uh, beautiful promise number three. Jesus will give an eternal reward. We see this in verses 26 through 28. It says, the, "'The one who conquers "'and who keeps my works until the end, "'to him I will give authority over the nations, "'and he will rule them with a rod of iron.'" As when the earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as myself has received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. Uh, again, I don't have time to unpack all of those things, but I will say this: the morning star is a reference to Christ Himself. Okay, and He says that I am going to give you some authority now. Again, you know, theologians kind of are, are, are divided about what this means here and this eternal reward or eternal promise. But I do think it has this, uh, this relationship of some type of responsibility or authority in eternity. It could be a reference in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, we're told that we will reign with Christ. Okay. How that looks in eternity, I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, it could be a reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where when Paul was talking about taking people to court and things like that. He makes this side comment there and he says, what, don't you know that we're going to judge the angels? Um, And so don't go to court. What he means by that uh, is probably in some way we're going to have uh, a role of authority in determining uh, the the angelic uh, eternal state with the ones who followed and the ones who didn't um, and that goes with timothy of reigning with christ it, it could be a reference to possibly in matthew chapter five and the beatitudes when jesus says remember he says blessed are the meek what does he say for they will inherit the earth okay so it could be a reference to that okay all I know is that in eternity we're not going to be sitting on a floating cloud playing a harp. Okay? That's all I know. Okay? If you think that's what heaven is, you know, no wonder why people are bored by the idea of it. No. We're going to have responsibilities. Back in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam responsibilities, right? Work and responsibility is not a part of the curse. It's when work is burdensome. It's the toil that is part of the curse. And we we get glimpses of this even to this day we get glimpses of like even in our current day maybe you'll have this great day at work okay and everything goes well and and you you're you're doing this project at work and everything is just great and you you get in your car and you say this was a good day right or or maybe you mow the lawn okay and I don't know about your lawn but I feel like I've mowed my lawn a million times this summer okay but you know you mow the lawn and it's growing and um uh, we we finally get it mowed and you look back over and you think that looks good, looks really good. And it's pretty really good when your neighbor hasn't mowed theirs yet, right? It looks really good. My neighbor's here today, so so that's why I say that <laughs> and everything. We have this joke going back and forth, you know, when we mow this, they say, "Okay, now it's your turn," you know. But it, it's it's really good, right? You and you enjoy that work moment. Maybe maybe for those of you who're in the home more, you, you, you the kids. By some blessed dispensation, mercy of God, they were listening and respectful all day. I mean, it's like you just want to freeze time in that moment, right? Okay? So we get those moments of appreciation of work that was accomplished and it was good, right? Okay? That is what it was supposed to be like in the the garden. And the curse messed with all that. That's what it's going to be like in heaven. So whatever authority he's talking about here, he gives authority over the nations and how they will rule and all this stuff, whatever that means, it means that there is an eternal responsibility that we are going to enjoy that is going to actually be a reward to us, that's going to be a blessing to us. Whether that's talking about reigning with Christ in 2 Timothy, whether that's talking about the meek inheriting the earth in Matthew 5 or, or 1 Corinthians 6, judging the angels, I don't know for sure. But I do know, that there is an eternal reward for us so we've taken a few minutes this morning to look at the good the bad the ugly and now the beautiful how does this apply okay let me take just a couple minutes do that and then we'll sing one more song how does this apply well one way i think this applies to us is that jesus knows his church regardless of its size yeah we're not a huge church we're not the smallest churches. The average sized church in America is seventy-five people, so we're a little bit above the average, but we're a lot smaller than a lot of other churches, right? Okay, um, and that's fine. I, I doesn't bother me in the least. Okay, and I want more people to come, of course. You know, I'm not telling people not to come, but you know, I, God uses churches of different sizes and different ways and for different things. Okay, but. Jesus knows his church regardless of the size. Sometimes it's easy for us to maybe think that we fly under the radar because you know there's all these mega churches and bigger churches and doing stuff and maybe, you know, for sure God is preoccupied with them. But no, no, no. This was an insignificant church. You know what I mean by insignificant, just in size. And by what relative thinking would be. But Jesus knew it. And Jesus writes to it. Jesus knows his church regardless of its size. Did you notice how he describes himself in verse 18? The eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. His eyes, he sees, he knows and he judges justly and he stands firm. Verse 19, he says, I know. Verse 12, he says, I am the one, uh, not verse 12, uh, verse 23. I am the one who searches minds and hearts. And so he knows this church. Now that's a good thing and it also should be it should be encouraging but it also should should cause us to be a little bit nervous at times too. But remember God judges justly and he knows our church regardless of its size. The second Application that I only have two, and I'm going to unpack this for just a second is that we are called to be discerning Christians. Okay, I've given you all the background, I've tried to explain what this letter was about just so we could get to this point right here. Because remember, I said that Jesus is not impressed when we mess with the gospel and its daily implications. We are called to be discerning Christians. That means we need to know our Bibles. We need to know what this book teaches here. This is why we spend time every week talking about it. This is why we read the scriptures together. This is why we have a nine o'clock teaching session here for adults to come in and for children to go to their classes where we teach the word because we want people to know the word, know the book. And we have access to all sorts of teaching right now. You have access for Teaching through podcasts and books and radio, TV, websites, YouTube, social media, and not to mention just a a cultural influence that we have here. And so, my point is this is that with all of those opportunities that we have before us, be discerning, okay? Be discerning. Be discerning of, 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 of what podcast you're listening to and, 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 and what YouTube videos you're watching and, and all that. Be discerning. You've, you've got to be someone who no matter what you're reading or listening to or watching, you're running it through the filter of this word and say, does it match up with scripture here? Be discerning. This is a call because this church, they obviously were not discerning enough. They were tolerating this teaching that was wrong, and then they were, in, in a good portion of it, were embracing it. And Jesus says, don't do either one of those things. There are plenty of teachers who will teach terrible things in the name of Jesus, okay? I mean, they, they will teach things that are totally against the Scriptures, and it's always in the name of Jesus. And I just, I, I just wonder how much Jesus is grieved by this. I, I, I read an article the other day. Uh, from a pastor, um, not sure where this person's a pastor at. Um, they, they listed the church's name. Uh, it was in Texas someplace, and I, I don't know anything about ministry. But the article basically was saying, um, the headline was something to similar to like, uh, uh, Christians claim the new abortion Texas law is good. Don't believe them. So I read the article. And this pastor went through to say that anyone who supported uh, limiting or er- eradicating abortions didn't understand what Jesus was teaching about how to love one another. They're saying that what Jesus was saying in loving one another means that abortion should be free and accessible to all, okay? A pastor was teaching this, right, as if in the name of Jesus, and they're dead wrong you see this is out there you say well okay yeah i see it there's a church in town here i got a mailer the other day i won't mention the name uh, and got a mailer and uh some of you are chuckling maybe you got the same mailer okay all right okay um okay now i got to figure out what to say and what not to say so it, it was uh one thing that caught my attention was uh church on your terms Okay. okay, yeah, okay, you guys got the same one. Okay, all right, church on your terms. Now again, my point isn't to, and this, there's a reason why I'm not um, uh, l- given the name because my point isn't to publicly, you know, be condescending towards any other church. That's not my point. But I do need, because of this text here, to point out that there are churches that are teaching things that we need to say, no, no, we can't tolerate that. And particularly if it's here. And in this, it was, you know, church on your terms, you do however you want it. And, and, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, they would list all sorts of things that would be competing theological uh, opinions and say, anyone's welcome, everyone, everyone's opinion is valid. And, every, and I'm like, you know, I, I, on one hand, I understand what they're trying to do. But on the other hand, it is setting people up for failure, We've got to go back to the book here, okay? Not about what I think, okay? Not about what you think. It's what the book says here. And this is why we tell you, open your Bibles, right? This is why when we, we have a sermon, we're like, okay, open your Bibles here. Because I want you reading this text here. I don't want you to say, well, Jeremy says this. You know, in some level, you know, who cares what Jeremy says? As long as Jeremy is saying what the Word says, okay, then listen to Jeremy. But if Jeremy ever moves away from this text, don't tolerate it, Okay? And so this is, there's plenty of teachers who will teach terrible things in the name of Jesus. So we need to evaluate maybe what we've accepted as a normal way of life. Last week we talked about moralistic therapeutic deism, and I can get into that again. We talked about live and let live. We talked about living in a perpetual state of distraction last week. You know, we've accepted as normative uh, that is against what the scriptures tell us to do. Now, I need to close with this, is that there was, uh, uh, I told you that Jesus doesn't like when we mess with the gospel, but also in his daily implications. I'm going to give you one more example. Okay, just one more example of maybe something we've become more accustomed to, a more, it's more normal than what it really should be, and it's against the daily implication of what the gospel should be. And here's the question. Are you okay with living in relative isolation? Okay, are you okay with living uh, just kind of in your own bubble and, and with your own goals and your own object, uh, uh, objectives and not thinking about other people? So, so, for instance, work, okay? E- evaluate how well you know your coworkers. E- e- do you think if you're a believer in Christ, do you think it's a mistake that you're a believer and you have coworkers that are not? Do you think that that's just a mistake? No, no, God has placed you there. God has placed you there to, to try to have a, a gospel conversations, to try to get to know them, to try to show Christ's love to them. This is why you're there, okay? And, and I've said this before. You see, Jesus, he puts you in these different jobs and these different environments. He gives you these relationships, and he's so generous, he'll even pay you to do it, okay? All right? And so, so, but a lot of times we go to work, we have our own objectives, our own minds, we kind of stay away from other people and we see them as competing or something like that. And let me just say, that that's a daily implication of the gospel that we're missing here. I'm saying, don't tolerate it. Don't tolerate it. Uh, You know, I've been trying to think of how to say this because... You know, we have a lot of people that are working remotely right now, and, and working remotely is a wonderful thing, and it is a wonderful blessing of modern technology, and, and so this illustration does not mean to say that it's wrong to work remotely. Here's the one thing I would say, though. If you're working remotely, just make sure that you haven't totally abandoned your mission field, Okay. So again, not saying that it's wrong to work remotely. I'm saying, though, that just remember that maybe you were used to having conversations in the hallway, or maybe you had opportunities when you were in a workplace with someone else that you no longer have. That's not necessarily sin or wrong. Just make sure you're trying to backfill that, okay? So whatever you've given up by working remotely because of maybe it makes sense, maybe it's policy, maybe it's mandated, fine. Not saying that's wrong, but try to figure out, okay, I've lost now, just remember you've lost, okay, I've lost these opportunities to have these conversations with people, so how am I going to backfill that? Maybe I'm going to send a text, maybe I'm going to send an email, maybe we're going to try to get together outside of work hours or something like that. I don't know what that looks like and I'm not here to tell you what it looks like, but what I am trying to say is just make sure that we don't accept as normative where it's something that maybe we shouldn't be tolerating as much. Maybe we need to be working on those relationships. So that's work example. What about church? Evaluate what keeps you from gathering together each week, okay? Again, we all have reasons why we can't get together. Understand that. But evaluate how often those things happen and what would keep you from from gathering together each week. Are you okay with living in isolation from other believers or from the mission that we're called? What about throughout the week? Evaluate your investment in other people. Uh, We had that summer series, the one another series, okay? Evaluate your investment in other people. Your hospitality, are you willing to interact with other people? I understand right now with what's going on and all the pandemic, maybe people aren't comfortable in getting together. Okay, but what about getting together outside? What about taking a meal and dropping it off to someone? How about a text, a card, or a phone call or a letter to someone? So my point is is that we're experiencing this thing where it's kind of like, okay, stay away from people. And I'm just trying to gently, lovingly push on that and say, okay, I get that you different comfort levels and all that stuff. I get it. Just make sure that you're trying to backfill those things that we're losing in this, okay? Maybe you're saying, no, I don't mind getting together. with people, well, then invite someone over. And I'll tell you this, the one thing I've observed is the more people stay away from church, the less they will uh, engage with other people outside of church. Because there's this rhythm that you get in seeing people, and then you feel like, okay, yeah, and then you invite someone over, and it's wonderful. But if you lose that rhythm, reaching out gets harder with every week that goes by, okay? And so let me just encourage you, don't live in isolation from each other and from our mission that we're called to live in. I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter three. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, how often? Every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, this is the pattern for churches. This is a pattern for believers. To encourage one another every day. To encourage somebody else every day. And this is where I'm saying where an application of this is we've accepted as norm of I'm going to live my life in my way and everyone else can do their thing. I'm saying we've got we to To push hard against that, we shouldn't tolerate that. The gospel implication in our lives is that we're going to invest in other people and love one another and try to encourage one another each day. Small groups is a great way of doing that. Uh, I'll just throw that out there. Let me give you some homework, and then we're done. If here's what I encourage you to do: if Jesus were writing you a letter, what do you think he would say? Would be the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, so if he's writing a letter to you, not to the church, he's writing a letter to you. What would he say? Okay, here's the good, here's the bad, here's the ugly. Okay, what would he write down about that? Take time to consider that. What would he say? Hey, praise God, man, this is good. You're doing this. Here's what's not so good, and here's what's really not so good. Okay. Then after you write that down, then how should Jesus' beautiful promises that we discussed today? How should that encourage you? He's a judge that judges justly. He doesn't add extra burdens, and then there is an eternal reward. How should that encourage you? Okay. Number three consider if you know your Bible well enough to spot false teaching, okay? And you say, well, I don't know if I do. Well, there's a solution to that, right? Okay, right? The solution is know your Bible, right? And, and you got people that are willing to teach it to you, okay? And we can go through this, and there's so many resources that are available for us right now to learn the scriptures, okay? So going to encourage you, do you know your Bible well enough to spot false teaching, okay? And then, here's just an exercise, and not that anyone needs to see this, but I just, just so you could see this, make a list of people you have, who you have intentionally invested in in the last month, not, in count, not counting your family members, okay? All right? Because you kind of have to. You all live together, okay? But the people that you have intentionally invested in in the last month. Now, again, the only purpose I'm doing is I just want you to evaluate whether or not you're having this investment in other people, this intentional investment. Um, this isn't to show anyone or anything like that. It's just more for an exercise for you to work through because Jesus doesn't like it when we mess with the gospel and his daily implication. His daily implication is that we're to be an encouragement to one another. Well, we're going to sing a song now. It's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. You know, it's going to talk about how that there's going to be some days that are bad and some days that we're discouraged and some days that don't go as well as we hope. But in the midst of that, the, the comfort is that Jesus Christ is the one that's holding us fast. And so I hope that this discussion from this letter to Thyatira is helpful for us to say, okay, we can't tolerate and we can't accept as norm the things that are against the gospel and its implied mission for our lives. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll sing. Father, I do pray that as we sing this song that we would be encouraged and that we would be reminded of how good you are and uh, that you do hold us fast. And so may you be honored in this song, and I pray that we wouldn't tolerate messing with the gospel and its, its implications for daily life. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.